0: This podcast is brought to you by Premier, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at Plus. The Profile... You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Brawley, your host for The Profile this Saturday afternoon as part of Faith Explored here on Premier Christian Radio. And every week we bring you an interesting guest with some interesting story about their faith and their life. And I've got an amazing story for you today. Michael Franzese joins me in the studio and we're going to be hearing about his life as a former uh, guy in the mob, uh, a guy who was very much involved in the mafia until Jesus turned his life around. So uh, I'm going to be introducing you to Michael in a moment's time, but if you would like to read more interviews with people from all walks of life about their Christian faith, Uh, do check out our magazine, the monthly magazine, Premier Christianity. Uh, You can find a free sample copy for you at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I'm the editor of the mag, and uh, I do encourage you to go and check out our website for more interviews, features, cultural analysis, and much more besides. That's premierchristianity.com. Michael, welcome along to the program. Well, good to be here, Justin. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. Um, Now, your reputation goes before you. Uh, I've been hearing you on shows like the Eric Metaxas radio show Mm -hmm. over in the U.S. You were featured on uh, a a U.K. program as well. Uh, Trevor McDonald did a series on the mob, and you were involved in that. You've got the most extraordinary story, and we're going to be hearing it on the program today. Just briefly, though, what's brought you over to the U.K. at the
1: moment? Well, I've been uh, real blessed in that I'm doing a, uh, somewhat of a tour, uh, a number of churches, I think 12 or 13 churches throughout the UK. And um, we started last weekend and extremely blessed. The uh, People have been wonderful. I've been sharing my story and we're going to be doing that for the next two weeks. Great, fantastic. Um, Michael,
0: tell us a little bit about growing up. You grew up essentially um, in the Mafia. Um, the uh, people who maybe aren't that familiar with what exactly that means. Do you want to just explain uh, th- very briefly what the mafia is, um, how it operates, and what kind of parts of the country it tends to dominate?
1: Well, it's a very real organization. Uh, obviously, it uh, it came from Italy, um, but in the United States, it's called La Cosa Nostra. It means "this thing of ours," similar to the mafia in Italy, but different organizations and. Um, if you take an oath and become a, a made member of La Cosa Nostra, Austria, not automatically made in Italy and vice versa. But obviously, we were respectful to one another. And, um, you know, throughout the United States, there are nine uh, mafia families. Um, five of them exist in New York. That's really the stronghold. And uh, they're a very uh, it's a very secret, very well-organized, uh, significant operation in, in the United States that had influence... Uh, in the highest levels in the White House, uh, you know, and right down to the men on the street and everything in between. So uh, it had a tremendous influence and impact on things that happened within the United States over the past hundred years. Mm. And uh, my dad was a very significant figure in that life.
0: Yeah, tell us about your dad, because he was, if you like, um, fairly significant in the Colombo family. Yes. Uh, tell we- us about that, that particular side of, of the Mafia and, and what... What was involved in his life?
1: Well, the Colombo family, one of the five New York families, and dad was the underboss, which is the second-in-command uh, in that life uh, back in the 60s. He was a very prominent figure, very uh, high profile uh, had a lot of media attention back then, big target of law enforcement. So I grew up in that atmosphere. And uh, law enforcement was around us all the time. My dad continuously got arrested, and you know we had surveillance on us all the time. And it was troubling for me because my dad was uh, really my hero. I loved him very much. He was very supportive of me. And I always saw law enforcement as the enemy. And Mm. they were around me since birth, practically. Mm. So uh, I grew up in that environment. um, And my dad was in and out of prison and on trial for some very serious uh, crimes. So I lived through all of that until eventually uh, he went to prison when I was 17 years old. and He drew a 50-year prison sentence was life-changing for me because up to that point my dad tried to keep me out of this life he Mm -hmm. wanted me to be a doctor I was actually uh, on my way to be a a doctor I was a pre-med student when dad started his time and that's when things really started to change for me. So he didn't wish for you the same life that he had had but nonetheless you did
0: step into that life Um, I guess part of that is because it's a family business and, and in some ways it's it's hard to escape it if you are born into the mob in that sense
1: yeah you know i have two brothers uh, neither one of them were involved but um i think my dad saw something different in me and you know because you, you you just can't come into that life somebody mm-hmm. has to propose you they have to believe that you know you have what it takes to be a member because it's quite challenging to be a part of that life mm-hmm. um but I guess he saw that in me. I didn't even know what he saw, but he saw it and uh, he proposed me into it, yes. You you
0: kind of became a, a foot soldier initially, as it were. Um, you, you you're actually sworn in to this particular way of life, aren't you? Uh, but eventually you, you came to a, a, a pretty senior position of your own within the mob.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very solemn ceremony. After you prove yourself worthy, it took me about a year and a half. I was kind of in a, or I was a recruit at that mm. point. I had to do whatever they told me to do to prove myself. And then it was Halloween night in the States in one thousand nine hundred and seventy five when I took an oath with uh, with five other gentlemen, and I was formally inducted into the mob. You come in as a soldier and um, you know I worked my way up. I was appointed a cop regime or captain back in one thousand nine hundred and eighty, and I operated in that capacity for the next fifteen years
0: yeah I mean you were in about <clears throat> twenty years before the thing that we will come to that Jesus kind of stepped in and, and transformed your life but um, I mean, just give us a sense of what kind of things would be going on. Um, you know, is it kind of like what you see in the Godfather movies? Is, is that a kind of a, a realistic representation of what happens or, or, is that kind of the Hollywood, you know, slightly glorified version?
1: Well, the Godfather was, uh, was fictional, mm-hmm. you know, things don't normally just pass on from father to son, as far as, sure. uh, leadership in the family, you still have to, it doesn't matter that it is your father. But um, I would say Goodfellas was a little bit more accurate. Okay. Um, you know, an accurate depiction of that life I mentioned in Goodfellas because I knew that crew pretty well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, there's no there's no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, at times that life is very violent. Mm. Our family, especially the Colombo family, uh, we were kind of aggressive and we were at war a lot of times uh, with one another. Yeah. So I lived through some of that. Um, and then as far as business is concerned, I mean, you know, you know, from the numbers racket on the street, right through the unions and, you know, corporate America, we we permeated every section of that.
0: Sure. And so there was a lot of fraud going on. Um, uh, I guess you were into the gambling industry and, and yeah. being involved in that. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know how easily it, you can talk about it now, but I mean, I'm guessing you did a lot of stuff which, looking back on, you wonder almost who that man was, because of the life you were leading was, was so very different.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, interesting that you, you put it that way, because uh, some of the things I did um, that I was uncomfortable with, you almost have to step outside of yourself mm. and, and do it. And that's what I did. Um, you know, Even though something bothered me, I did it anyway. Yeah. And uh, you know, I try to tell people I was a, a knowing and willing sinner at that point right. in time, even when I was uncomfortable in doing it. Mm. And, yeah, I had a big gambling operation. I had a number of bookmakers working for me. Um, You know, I was heavily into fraud. I was defrauding the government out of uh, tax on every gallon of gasoline. That was my major uh, uh, scam, I would say, at Mm. that point that uh, netted me hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, But, um, you know, I wasn't into some of the things that other guys were in. I was never into prostitution. I hated anything to do with drugs. Right. And our family, we weren't allowed to be involved with drugs. We were, we got killed, right. it was that
0: serious. And, and it, was that because these things were kind of divided up between the different families to some extent?
1: Well, just about everybody was involved in everything yeah. in some way, but mm. some families were in it a little bit more than others. Right. Yeah. But right. you know, across the board, none of us was supposed to be involved with drugs, right. um, even though some guys were. Yeah. Um, and then you just kind of gravitated to what you felt you did best. And that's, that's how I yeah. got along. Sure. Um, and, and going back to those years, um,
0: it was obviously a life of crime, but I suppose, in a sense, it was the life you knew. And, and in that sense, um, you, there were there were good times and bad times, uh, and even a sense of camaraderie, I'm sure, among the, the, the crew that you mixed with at the time.
1: Well, it's what I miss the most about the life, is this com- camaraderie around, among the men. It was very mm-hmm. powerful, you know, and I still, in a sense, a uh, I'm from that kind of man's world and you know when I got into the life you're told straight out wherever you go in the world you'll have a brother to back you up you know you you don't ever violate another man's wife Mm. or sister or daughter and there was this strong unification. Kind of a code of
0: honor almost.
1: Big code of honor and you know you know when you come into the life um, another part of that you're told straight out you gotta play by the rules Mm. and if you break the rules you can pay possibly some very serious consequences, maybe pay with your life. Mm. And that life came before anything, meaning that if your best friend were to violate the rules and you were called upon to uh, allow him to suffer consequences, you had to do it. Right. And so we kind of justified, hey, the playing field is level. We all know Mm. what we're getting into. Mm. If we screw it up, you know, it's on us.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people have a bit of a slightly mythical, glamorized view of the, the, the mob and the mafia lifestyle and so on. Is there a danger, I suppose, almost um, even in, in you and sharing your testimony that it can almost glamorize this, this what is effectively, you know, can be pretty horrendous and, and I think probably has had devastating effects on many people, in fact.
1: Oh, there's no question that the media has glamorized this life. I mean, when The Godfather came out, I remember... Uh, it, it just elevated everybody's yeah. image of the mob right. you know, uh, even guys on the street back then were walking mm-hmm. around differently I yeah. remember how, yeah. what an impact that had uh, it's not a life that should be glamorized at all I, you know I say this all the time the mob life, the gang life they're evil lifestyles and the reason I say that is because I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been totally destroyed mm-hmm. including my own now, not my wife and children praise God have, have been able to shield them but my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my father, uh, the family's been devastated. And every member's family that I know of, same fate. Yeah. And so anything that does that is, is an evil life.
0: I mean, the good news is that your story in particular is a story of redemption and restoration and God using your background to reach many others. Um, you've written a book, and we should mention that at this point. I believe it's called Blood Covenant. Yes. Uh, And there's even been a number of documentaries made about your life as well. Uh, One in particular that you've had a hand in. Do you want to remind us of the the name of
1: that? Uh, The recent one was, uh, it's called God the Father. It was based upon another book that I wrote. And um, it really is, you know, my life story, um, but in documentary style and uh, kind of uniquely done. But it's having a tremendous impact, you know, throughout the United States and hopefully then beyond.
0: Yeah. Well, my guest on the profile today is Michael Franzese. Uh, He is, if you like, uh, from uh, mafia stock and lineage. Um, His father was an underboss in one of the most significant crime families in the USA. He himself rose to a position of some prominence, but we're going to get to the point at which God turned his life around and has really been using him in a a remarkable way since. I mean, do you want to give us an impression? You've told us how how significant your father was, and he obviously then went into prison when you were at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you want to say like what kind of prominence you then had in the mafia going forward? Because I guess everyone's got different levels in mm-hmm. this kind of uh, world. And some people claim to be in the mafia, but they were maybe more hangers on. Right. But actually you, you had a genuine kind of, you were a person of interest, let's say, to, to the authorities and so on.
1: Yeah, I, I became a significant target of law enforcement. Uh, I actually had two federal racketeering cases. One brought on by Rudy Giuliani. I was really the first major mob guy he indicted under the racketeering statute. So, uh, and I rose to that prominence in the '80s. Um, you know, Fortune magazine, to give you an idea, uh, wrote a uh, a big article uh, back in '86, "50 Biggest and Most Powerful Mob Bosses in America," and I was one of the six that were featured out of the fifty. And they actually had a chart with the 50 of us on there, according to wealth and power and prominence. And I was number 18 on the list. Wow. I was uh, the youngest guy on the list, and I was five behind John Gotti at the time, who was mm. number 13. So they had me pretty high up. Uh, they were grooming me to be the boss or the underboss, and um, I was uh, bringing in a significant amount of money. So I was really rising in the ranks, and, um, which was a good thing, I guess, within that life, but certainly mm. a bad thing as far sure. as attracting law enforcement attention and— uh, you know, that was constant. And in a sense, your prominence made your ultimate
0: defection from the mob all the more kind of an issue, because I guess if you try to leave that life having, you know, got that far in it, that's going to have ramifications for someone.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when I walked away and it became public, um, you know, the boss of my family, who's now doing life in prison, call my Persico, immediate contract on my life, my father went along with it um, because my dad, um, even though we had this love between us, when you come into that life, the life comes before everything. Wow. And he went along with it, and I had uh, had some issues with that that I had to deal with. Mm. And law enforcement tried to put me in the witness protection program because I kept getting word from their informants that I was going to get killed, and uh, you know I had to deal with that for quite some time. Um, it, it, and, and in that sense, how many would you say of
0: your peers who you were around at the time who were also in in the mob uh, are still active or are, the, are they all in prison or even dead at this point in time?
1: Well I'll give you an idea out of the uh, the fortune magazine article uh, they listed 50 mm. uh, 47 of them are dead wow and two of them are doing life in prison so I'm the only one that survived in, in any way sense.
0: But not just survive but had your life radically turned around and I think that's where I'd, I'd like to come to next because um, part of that story is a woman that you met. Do you want to tell us about about your wife and, and the impact she had on your life?
1: Yes, um, you know a young girl that I met uh, during a, a, a movie production I was producing a film in South Florida. Is this
0: one of the kind of i don 't know fronts for the for the business interests you had as a, in the mafioso or-
1: well, yes and no. I mean, it was a legitimate business, but I was fi- financing it with illegitimate gains, okay. <laughs> so to right. speak. So, yeah, I put a lot of money that I, I had defrauded the government out of a lot of money and put it into the film into business. The so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but the movies were legit. Right. If you take that away. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I met her on a movie set. She was 20 years old and a um, young Christian girl who uh, was strong in her faith and who had a mom that was even stronger in her faith. And these two women had a tremendous impact on me. I fell in love with her, you know, when I least expected something like that to happen. Mm. I was at the top of my mob game when I met her. And this woman just totally turned my, my head and my heart around. So what happened? Did, you, did, did she know
0: that you were in this game? I mean, how aware was she of, of exactly where your money came from?
1: She had no awareness at all. I mean, she uh, was from Southern California. Uh, there's no mob out there of any consequence. Mm. She didn't know anything about that life. She saw The Godfather once, and to yeah. her it was just a movie. It was yeah. a myth. Yeah. And I didn't sit down with her and tell her, hey, guess who I am? And yeah, you know, yeah. uh, she, as far as she was concerned, I was a movie producer. And I guess you
0: were used to kind of, in that sense, leading a bit of a double life. You were used to kind of you know, fooling people, basically. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, you, you, know, you didn't actually sit down and advertise. You know, <laughs> by the way, I'm a captain in a family. <laughs> yeah. I'm, no, I just went about my business, you know, and I had a lot of legitimate businesses at sure. the time, so mm. she didn't know she had mm. no clue and um, you know when she finally did realize what was going on, it was probably too late. She was already in love with me, so right you know
0: so so you you got romantically involved in the end um, what How did things come to a head how, how did this lead to you deciding you wanted to make a break with with the mob?
1: Well, when I realized I wanted her in my life and that my life was really a direct contradiction to what her and her mom Mm -hmm. believed, I respected their faith because it was true to them. Yeah. And I knew that I had to make some changes if I wanted this girl in my life. So, uh, again, they were indicting me on another big case. And because I had leverage with the government, because I beat them several times, I knew that I could negotiate a plea deal. So uh, I did that. I negotiated a deal, a 10-year prison sentence. I had a $15 million restitution. I had a jet plane and a helicopter. I gave that all to the mm-hmm. government. I had $5 million in forfeiture. So it was about a 20, $20 million package and a 10-year prison sentence. And I figured I would you know, marry Camille, mm-hmm. that's her name, move out to the West Coast, do a couple of years in prison. When I get out, I had an excuse not to meet anybody in New York, because when you're on parole, you can't associate with anybody. And I figured maybe after 10 or 12 years, the guys in New York will forget about me. I'd live happily ever after out in California. So that was my plan. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, someone above had a different plan for that. It didn't work out that way, but um, that, that's how I envisioned it to happen. Sure. Uh, I guess at the point where
0: you were then being indicted, the truth came out about who you were to, to your wife, or your future wife, at least.
1: At yeah. Point. She understood at that point that I had some issues and, mm. uh, but again, you know, I, I tell people, until this very moment, until mm. this very moment, I have never sat down with my wife and had a discussion with her about my former life. Never.
0: That's really interesting to me. Uh, and, 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 and is that because you do feel like there's a kind of a, an old Michael and a new Michael in that sense? Um, I mean, ha, ha, obviously, you talk to lots of other people about your former yes. life. But, f- but for her, it's something she doesn't want to necessarily hear too much about.
1: She absolutely doesn't want to hear about it. Right. Um, she's heard enough and she's yeah. lived through enough. Yeah. And I'm not comfortable talking to her about it because sure. I know it's it's directly against her yeah, beliefs. Yeah. So, you know, and plus, you know, being in that life, we never talked to women anyway about our right. formal life. Yeah. We certainly never did. My yeah. dad never used to do that, yeah. and so it's just part of who I am.
0: Yeah. Take us then to what happened when uh you you'd got married mm-hmm. but then you went to prison. Yes. Um, you were hoping for maybe a few years and then, I guess, parole and you'd, you'd be out again. But what actually happened?
1: Well, I did parole out after first five years. I did five mm-hmm. years. But mm-hmm. during that five-year t- uh, time, it became public that I was walking away and uh, life magazine wrote a huge story about me and they interviewed me and you know very i did what i always do i say there is no mob and i don't know what you're talking about i married a girl i moved out to the west coast but uh the way they wrote the article it was like i was becoming a major informant and i was gonna it just it it was titled quitting the mafia Mm. i never expected anything like that so uh the warden in prison uh called me into his office and said excuse me i gotta lock you down." You know, the FBI is saying you're going to get killed because you're defecting from that life. And that's when really all hell broke loose for me in my life. And they did lock me down. They moved me from different prisons. The FBI was trying to get me to become an informant because the word was on the street that I was in trouble. I heard that you you
0: described it as they they used what's called the the diesel program.
1: Diesel therapy. Diesel therapy. What
0: is diesel therapy to try and kind of pressure you into becoming a, a witness. Yeah,
1: in the United States, they have federal prisons all over the states. In every different state, there's another one. So, you know, the worst part of doing time in the feds is if they put you on a plane, a plane that the marshal has confiscated, that's, a, you know, from some drug dealer, and they just transport you to different prisons around the country. So you'll get there in the middle of the night, you'll stay there for, you know, a day or two, and then they pick you up and they transport you again. It's extremely taxing on you. It's and
0: disruptive. It kind of breaks down your, your mental yes. kind of ability and so on. You yes. kind of want to give in, but you didn't want to give in. What, you didn't want to kind of enter a formal witness protection system where you would become no. an informant.
1: No, I wasn't looking to hurt anybody. I didn't want to testify against anybody. I wasn't mad at anybody. I just right. wanted out of the life. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they saw me as a major source of information, and obviously I could have hurt a lot of people, so they really pressured me. And they pressured my wife. They told my wife I was going to get killed, and they wanted her to talk me right. into it, you know?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so a lot of pressure, but you, you kind of you, you stood your ground on that one, and you didn't want to do that. But part of that was you actually went into effectively solitary confinement. For a long time didn't
1: you? Yeah they kept me locked down you know uh, a total of almost three years and in, uh, in solitary. And
0: this was effectively not really seeing anyone except for maybe the prison guard giving you your meals and that kind of thing I mean genuinely alone in that sense just with yourself for yes. a long time and I can imagine for some people that drives them crazy but for you it had in a sense a transformative effect didn't it?
1: Well, yeah, what happened was uh, I did get out on parole after five years. And uh, then I was on parole for 13 months uh, out in L.A. It was a horrible time of our lives. I mean, I couldn't get my life together. Uh, You know, we had people looking to hurt us. We had to keep moving around. And it was hard to earn a living at that point. And I was still on parole, so I had to report to the feds all the time. Um, And uh, 13 months later, I ended up violating my parole. And they threw me back in and they said they were gonna indict me on another case and they gave me four years on the violation, which was the maximum. Mm. And I spent almost three years out of that in the hole because at that point the government was really upset with me and they would just Mm. give me a really hard Mm. time. You know, I learned during that experience that we weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. Mm. It was very difficult to to get through that. And um, if I wasn't, if I didn't develop my faith during that period of time, I don't think have came out of there well.
0: Because up to this point, obviously, um, your wife had had an influence and her mum. You'd seen, in a sense, <clears throat> what genuine Christian faith can look like. I think you'd come from a kind of an, a, a nominal kind of Catholicism in mm-hmm. your background, but it didn't really mean anything to you in terms of a, a personal relationship with God. But you still weren't quite there when, at the point you went into the hole. But I think the experience of being in the hole meant you kind of reached rock bottom in a way.
1: I did. And, you know, prior to that, I would accepted Christ, but I uh, accepted him maybe as a Catholic where I wanted my right. sins forgiven. Mm. I wasn't ready to go any further than that. Oh, I'll try to be good. You know, yeah. that was it. Yeah. But um, it was during that time when, when I was desperate, really, because I thought I'd spend the rest of my life in there, that I, I turned to the Lord and looked for that relationship.
0: Well, we're going to come to that on the other side of a short break. Uh, My guest today on the profile is Michael Franzese. He's got the most extraordinary story of how his life was turned around. Uh, He's a former uh, made man, uh, uh, part of the New York Mafia. And he's got the most extraordinary life story. uh, And we're going to be hearing more about it in the next part of today's programme. You're listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. And if you want more interesting interviews with people from all walks of life about their Christian faith, do check out Premier Christianity Magazine. That's at premierchristianity.com. Add forward slash free sample. We'll send you the latest magazine absolutely free. We'll be back in a moment's time.
1: The Profile.
0: You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.
1: Where faith comes to life.
0: Welcome back to the second part of today's programme The Profile with me, Justin Briley. I'm the senior editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And uh, this programme brought to you in association with that monthly title. If you want to find more interesting stories from people with all kinds of different uh, backgrounds, walks of life, uh, all kinds of different careers, uh, then do check out the magazine. Uh, It's available for free if you want to ask for a free sample copy. PremierChristianity.com slash free sample. Here on the profile, uh, we like to interview all kinds of different folk. And um, today's possibly one of the most... Interesting, unusual stories in terms of their conversion story that I've ever heard. Michael Francis is my guest. Um, he is a former mafioso. And uh, all that stuff you've seen in The Godfather and Goodfellas, well, he's been on the inside of that. He's seen the real-life version of that up close and personal. Um, and uh, we were saying in the last section there, Michael, that uh, obviously people kind of get a glamorous view very often of this. You know, it's the, it's the rat pack and the mob and, you know... Mm-hmm. The, the style and, and the, the swagger and so on. And I guess, I guess they, there can be a little bit of, of that going on. And, and, but I guess we get the, the Hollywood version of it. I mean, as far as you're concerned, what actually happened in the lives of the people you knew and the families was always, in the end, a destructive thing. Because, as you say, all of those people you mentioned who were on that, that you know, rich list, um, they're either dead or in prison. So uh, I guess, what, what attracts people? What keeps people in that life? What, why, what, if, if it is so destructive, why do people stay there for so long?
1: Well, when you're on the outside looking in, um, it is very attractive. I mean, you know, guys dress up nice. They, uh, people cater to them everywhere. They drive nice cars. They have good women on their arms. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that power. Yeah. And I think that power is, is uh, very attractive. I mean, I saw that in my dad and I saw that in his associates and that became uh, attractive to me. And plus you're told that, you know, it's a life of honor Mm. um, and it's a life of dignity in a way, believe it or not. So it's very attractive. And the media has uh, made it out to be even more attractive, I believe. But yes, the the real stories, um, and I was there my whole life, I don't know any member of that life or their families that hasn't been totally devastated. And because of that, I call it an evil life. I'm not calling the guys evil. Right. I was one of them. Sure. I just happened to be blessed. Mm. But the lifestyle is very, very destructive. And um, whether that be the mob, the mafia, gangs, it's all the same. Mm. I mean, today, and we'll we'll come
0: to you know how how God really turned your life around in a moment. But you you now use your story to reach other men, particularly who who maybe have an attraction to that. But what it does it means you can go into the prisons and talk. You know, in a really frank way about the life that you were part of. So, in a way, um, as much as you regret, I'm sure, much of what happened and you were involved in. At the same time, you can obviously see the way God's God's using it.
1: Oh, no question. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's always what the enemy meant for bad. God will turn and use for good because there is a real intrigue with that life. It's mm. given me a platform throughout the world. I, I never realized uh, just how attractive it was to outsiders. You know, one of the things I tell young people, because I I spend a lot of my time with them, they'll watch a movie like The Godfather and Goodfellas, and they'll see all of the glamour. They'll see the riches and the wealth and all. And I always tell them, but did you see the end of the movie? Who went to jail? Who got killed? Whose family? They don't see that part. Mm. They only see what's attractive to them. And it's it's an uh, amazing—it's very interesting that people— disregard what happens to them at the end and only focus on, you know, what they see as to be an attractive lifestyle. And you've
0: obviously been approached by all kinds of media organizations and producers and so on, people who are interested in hearing that story, because Mm -hmm. it is a dramatic story and, you know, it's such an interesting one. Um, I mean, do you get to tell about your faith? Obviously in this context on a Christian radio station, we, we want to hear about your faith story. Is it a kind of a strange thing, though, for, for the secular world to hear about a, a former gang member mob boss who who now is such a strong believer in Jesus?
1: It is. The challenge when I do a lot of media, you know, because you're always trying to get the story out. Yeah. Um, and they trying to brush over the faith part. But I always tell them that's part of my story. Yeah. Um, without that, there's really no story here. Mm. I'm just another mob guy. And... Um, you know, but I found out, Justin, I, I need to, you know, get one line out about my faith and people get it. Yeah. You don't have to be preachy during these things. But if I tell you, hey, I'm a person of faith, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, that seems to be enough quite often to attract people that want to hear more.
0: And, I, and I'm, I'm aware sitting opposite you here that, that you are in a position to talk to people I could, I could never have any particular reason to talk to and obviously that's that's an amazing privilege for you now to be Mm -hmm. able to to present Christ to people and what kind of reaction do you tend to get when you're traveling the U.S. or other places and and talking about your story especially to people who maybe you know have some association or have a criminal past or whatever I mean do you find that because of your past it, it gives you that connection?
1: Oh no question I always say this God is brilliant in giving me a platform that's of interest to people all around the world Justin, I can honestly say, in 20 years, um, and speaking at thousands of, of uh, you know different functions, mm. I've never had anything but a very positive reaction. Not even like lukewarm. And I think you know I've learned now. God is the Holy Spirit has inspired me as to how to use my story, and weave in a gospel message to the point where people they're impacted by yeah. it. And you know one of the attractive things for pastors that bring me in is that. Uh, they say, listen, you know, invite your family member, your friend, your neighbor, who would never come in to hear a gospel message, but they want to hear about a mob story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we always have top attendants, you know, people come in the door that wouldn't ordinarily walk in. And then it's my job, you know, hopefully to feed them and plant seeds so that they walk out of there really thinking yeah. about what God can do in their lives.
0: And, and obviously you've been able to do that as well through, through the book, Blood Covenant, mm-hmm. um, through the, the documentary film, God the Father. Um, I know you've been featured in by people like Sir Trevor MacDonald, uh, mm-hmm. Life Inside the Mob and so on. And, um, but then you, there's even, I understand a, on the cards, a, a musical um, down the line. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like kind of like, wow, where, where, how does that work? You know, uh, it sounds like you're really developing some interesting ways of telling your story. Uh, so do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, you know, the uh, the, the uh, choreographer that introduced me to my wife, that he was on that movie set 31 years ago when I hired him. Uh, he and I have maintained a relationship, and he came to me a few years ago wanting to do a musical about the mob in Las Vegas. Uh, the history of the mob mm. uh, in Las Vegas set to music and dance. So we've developed this show over the last couple of years, and we'll be producing it in the next uh, several weeks, and it'll be in, uh, opening up over the summer. Wow. But here's the interesting part. Uh, My co-producer, Jeff Kutash, is not a Christian. And this was originally going to be the story of the history of the mob. But he's found my story so intriguing that now he's weaved in a gospel message, in a way, into this musical. I didn't tell him to do it. I didn't impose that upon him. It was just his thought. So without being preachy or pushy, they're going to see a little bit of that message in the musical. And um, I'm not going to give it away how no. he's done it because it's it's, it's uh, you know it's it's amazing and he's very talented obviously yeah, so yeah. I, I am committed that anything that I do anything that I do in some way has to further uh, the the cause of my ministry sure. and my ministry is to you know spread the gospel yeah. so and it works out that way even when I'm not the one pushing it. It's fantastic.
0: Um, Let's go back to your story, because you were in this solitary confinement for three years. I mean, that's a long time to basically be by yourself. Uh, Mm -hmm. As I say, it would drive some people crazy. um, But for you, you reached rock bottom and you actually turned towards God. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that was the fact that one of the prison guards actually gave you a Bible. Mm -hmm. And you effectively started reading the Bible for the first time, because I guess you didn't have much else to do in there, did you? What, what, What happened? Tell us about it.
1: Well, you know, I read the Bible in a different sense. The reason I picked it up was because um, I was challenging God at that point. Uh, I wanted to know if it was real. Mm. And so in reading the Bible, I, I started to read it as if I was preparing for my trial. And I was looking for evidence. And to make a very long story short, you know, I've read my Bible inside out. I don't know how many times when I was in prison. There's more of my notes on there than there is scripture because I take notes on everything. Mm -hmm. And then I had my wife send me in uh, several books on all different faiths because I wanted to study and see which faith made sense to me. And um, then I had a Sony Walkman, and I used to listen to Pastor Greg Laurie and people that interpreted Scripture so well. Tell
0: us about this because this is quite significant for your story. Pastor Greg Laurie may not be a familiar name to many people in the UK, but he's a pastor of a large church out in California. Yes. Um, but he had a radio ministry. Yes. Uh, of his sermons and so on, and and that you you kind of started listening to that. He wouldn't have known that you were listening, but but that that ministry in particular had quite a transformative effect in terms of you beginning to dig into scripture and understand its meaning.
1: Tremendous because he, uh, you know, through those broadcasts was able to explain certain areas of scripture that maybe I wasn't, you know, too, uh, too knowledgeable about. Yeah. And I found that to be extremely helpful. And uh, we now have become good friends because I sought him out when I got out of here. I wanted to let him understand the impact that he had on me. But, um, you know, I, Again, I, I approached the Bible from a different perspective, almost as an atheist, yeah. like, prove it to me, God. And uh, I came out of there believing with all my heart that the Bible was God's Word and that Jesus was my risen Savior based upon what I saw to be the evidence that was very solid. Yeah. And I studied while I was in there. I had nothing but time on my hands, 24-7. What else was I going to do? But it was a time that God really used to, uh, to grow my knowledge and to really change my heart.
0: Right. So in a sense, it's almost as though you had to get by yourself in that kind of a way. And as much as you wouldn't have wished it on your worst enemy, that was what God needed to do to get your attention, almost.
1: Justin, there's no question. uh, God didn't violate me. I violated myself and put myself back there. But there's no question in my mind that had that not happened to me and I would have been on the street, I would have never accepted Christ. Because even those who do have some
0: measure of change. It's, it's very difficult to actually escape the life when you get out of prison, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I was too much a product of that life. Yeah. And w- w- I wasn't changing my life. I was just leaving that life. I was still Michael Francis, the same mm. person. So I might have carried on almost in the same way, just outside of that life. So I tell people, you can change maybe, but change is temporary. Transformation through Christ is permanent. Even though you may fall back to sin, it's a different thing. You know, you're transformed in a way because Christ is working within you. You have a relationship with him. And I needed those three years for God to work on me because it wouldn't have worked otherwise. And I guess
0: your priorities changed a great deal in that time. Um, you, You came to see that your life was Christ's from that point on. Did you kind of make a conscious decision or know that you were going to be used in the way you have been used since to 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 bring his message to others
1: i had no idea i i didn't know what was in store for me when i walked out of prison i never intended to be sharing the gospel i i didn't have a plan Mm. i had no plan um you know it's just god grabbed me and and navigated a course for me and we can spend another two hours (laughs) on how that happened it was i don't want to say by chance because god had this design for me but i certainly didn't know what was going to happen yeah. When I got out of prison, I was just trying to figure out how I was going to get my life back in order. Uh, yes, as a Christian, you know, now I had a different perspective, but it wasn't to, you know, go out and preach the, the word. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you, you sought out Pastor Greg Laurie after you'd come out, and I guessing he, he was obviously thrilled that his ministry had had that impact on you while, while you were inside. Was it through him that you began to get the opportunity to, to tell your story to others?
1: No that uh, I was actually recruited out of prison in the last few months oh, really? uh, yeah to, to initially start working with all of our pro and college sports leagues, educating um, athletes about the dangers of gambling um, and about was this because they, the authorities could see that you had,
0: some kind of genuine change had happened in your life and they felt you could you could start to talk about that. Yeah to yeah. Us. yeah
1: And they asked if I was willing to do that and I said yes. And that's how I started speaking, and then gradually churches started to contact me. And before you know it, I'm sharing testimony, which I didn't even know what testimony. I thought you did that from a <laughs> well, this
0: was, was a down. new world to you in a whole sense, whole new world. Yeah. You you hadn't been in church really in that sense, never. Um, and and suddenly you find, oh wow, people really want to know about this and and hear my story.
1: Yeah, and it was like at first an afterthought to me. Okay, I'll I'll go out and share my story because people are asking me, and then I'll try to go to work. You know, it was that kind <laughs> of a thing. I never felt it was going to be, uh, you know, a ministry. Yeah. I mean, I never saw my name next to ministry. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the way God just guided this whole venture of mine, mm. I would say, and, and brought it to where it is today. I mean, when you did get out, and
0: this was about um did you still feel... In danger obviously that story about you had made out that you were kind of an informant and so on Did you kind of live with the fear that there might be repercussions,
1: you know, Justin? I this is kind of strange, but I never lived in fear and one of the reasons for that is, you know Being part of that life You're always on edge Mm. You're always watching your back and I had an experience where I was walked into a room one night and I didn't know if I was gonna walk out again uh, that's a danger of that life, and it's one of the horrible parts of that life. You know, you could be in trouble, your best friend walks you in a room, you don't walk out again. And unfortunately, I experienced that with others. And um, so I, I, I didn't live in fear when I came out.
0: Because you'd kind of, I guess that kind of life means you sort of grow a pretty tough skin,
1: in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And you know, it's not only that, you know, I tell people, God doesn't throw us into the fire without preparing us. He mm. prepared me by having 20 years in that life. Yeah. So I knew what to expect. Mm. So I, I knew I could face death if I had to. I knew I was going to have trouble that I'd have to try. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Mm. You know, I never sell my former associates short. They're right. very capable. Yeah. Um, so I was careful how I, I lived my life. And,
0: you know, I guess some 20 years later, uh, do you feel like, that those issues are kind of behind that the the people who maybe once might have had a been a concern they've kind of they're off the scene they're out of the scene and so on nowadays well yeah
1: i mean the boss of my family who's now doing life he took it extremely personal when i walked away and um he's uh he's an old school live by the book kind of guy if he were home i would still have trouble right he would not let this Mm. Die. Mm. This would be a lifelong ambition of his, okay. uh, but he 's gone for the rest of his life. Uh, his son, who he and I were very close, mm. we were being groomed the two of us to mm. take over the family. Uh, I would have had the same issues with him, but he 's not doing life right, so they 're gone now i can 't go back to Brooklyn and say, "Hey guys, I'd like to move back into the neighborhood <laughs> i wouldn 't last, but no. you know you can 't thumb your nose in anybody 's face
0: yeah." <clears throat> Um, we're, we're coming towards the end of, of the program today. Uh, my guest has been Michael Francis, uh, who's been telling us about his former life in the mob in New York, uh, how God turned his life around, though, and his ministry since in telling others about Jesus, the transformation that can happen. Um, how have you seen that impact other people? Have you got any stories in particular of, of people who who have been impacted by your story and it's, and it's been part of the key to transforming their life, Michael?
1: You know, Justin, one of the joys of this or the greatest satisfactions I get is I get daily, daily, right up until this morning, um, emails uh, through social media about lives that have been impacted that I'm not even aware of. Mm. They've heard my story. They've read my book. They'll hear my story here. And, you know, I I tell people my purpose in life, I believe God's purpose for me in my life is to be an encouragement and to provide hope for everyone. Because if God can not only forgive me Mm. but turn my entire life around, Um, then he can do that for anyone, because at one point in time, I was probably the worst of of the worst, you know, like Paul in a way. (laughs) Um, And and again, I don't compare myself to Paul as far as his mission. His mission was amazing, but we were both bad guys that God Mm. reached into and turned around. Mm. And uh, if he can do that for us, he can do it for you. And so many lives have been impacted. It's a joy for me every day to hear another story, and there's some dynamic stories out there you know, who came out of drug abuse and all this Mm. kind of stuff. And and, uh, the only real dramatic story I haven't heard yet is somebody else coming out of the mob. Right, that's interesting. (laughs) And uh, I may not hear that story, but I'm hoping that it happened.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the mob still exists today. Would you say it's... It's different to sort of when you were in your heyday in the 1980s? Is, is it a kind of, has it evolved in, in, in any particular ways? Yeah,
1: there's no question. The golden era of the mob in the United States was really from the 50s through the mid 80s. Yeah. And that's when we thrived. And mm. it'll never be the same because the government really came down, right. led by Giuliani yeah. in the mid 80s, and they've devastated that life. Right. But it's still there, it's no. not going away. Mm. And it's kind of building up again, actually, right now, from what I hear. But it's different.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess when I look at you, you know, I I look at a guy who's who's been through that story. Uh, He's he's got this story to tell. Um, And in a way, you don't fit the typical mold of a of a Christian, of an evangelist. You're you're a tough guy, you know, Michael. You and you, I guess. Though part of that is the reason you are able to reach these other guys because. Uh, you know, if if the average, I don't know, prison inmate were to hear uh, some Christians coming in to tell me about God, they might have a picture in their mind. But when you walk in and tell your story, maybe it maybe shatters their their preconceptions about who God uses, who uh, who God can reach, and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, we we'll pray that'll that'll happen at Pentonville. I'm going in there next weekend. Wow, uh, I do a lot of prison ministry, and yes, the guys, you know, one of the. Again, God's brilliance is that guys on the street look up to Mafia La Cosa Nostra as the ultimate man- gang. And mm. We are number one in everybody's mm. eyes, and I can say that because I've been seeing that in the last 20 yeah. years. And so when I talk, they listen. And to see a guy that was so heavily involved in that life that was able to turn it around and, and get out, it's inspiring to them. Yeah. And uh, you know, if, they can, if he can do it, I can do it. And um, I have credibility you know, so they listen. I talk to most hardcore guys out there, and Justin, you have to see it. They're like little kids listening because mm-hmm. I bring them hope and, and yeah. inspiration. And yeah. you know, I, I found out one of the one of the greatest attributes as a Christian that we can have in sharing our story is to be relatable. People want to look at you and be able to relate to your life. Yeah. And I hear this all the time. Mm. This is the this, story. I've had this said to me a million times. I have a story similar to yours, not exactly, but similar. Mm. And when you hear that, it's, wow, people are relating to you. Yeah. Even though I'm in a different level, maybe with yeah. the mob stuff, yeah. they can relate to me in their life and yeah. maybe see a way out.
0: I guess the, the, the difficulty is, and obviously you've made it work for yourself, but when people do come out of a criminal background and it may not be the the mafia but it may be some other kind of gang thing or or some life of crime um it it can be difficult i think to step into a kind of the christian world the the church where people maybe aren't used to dealing with people who have that kind of background or or, um there's there's maybe expectations about the way you act the you know the way you you should have your act together in some ways And, and not everyone is a you know, a sparkling diamond when they mm-hmm. first get converted. There's still a lot of mm-hmm. the old person in them. You know. So, how? What advice do you have for people who who maybe do want to make a commitment, but they're, they're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can do church. I'm not sure. You know, I'm meant to be in that kind of thing.
1: You know, just be humble. Be yourself. Um, people see through you. You mm-hmm. know, they 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 see who you really are. I, I don't think I've ever had to act any differently than who I am. And you know. You know, we're a constant battle with the old self. I am. Mm. You know, I tell people that. When I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. Mm. You know, I could easily slip back into my old ways, but I have to be nourished all the time. Mm. You know, I tell people my being in church, spreading the gospel every weekend, is probably more necessary for me than the people sitting in the pews. I get it. And uh, I I hold myself accountable by the people I, I hang with. I don't put myself in a situation where guys can influence me in any way. And then, of course, as you grow in your faith, it gets easier to, you know, to, to become that person that you're supposed to be. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just be yourself, man. You know, relate yeah. your story, and, and people will pick up on it.
0: Yeah. I guess part of it as well is, is you, you look. You know, 35 years ago, when you were in the gang, um, in the mob, you would probably, probably hardly recognize what you're doing today the the way you are today um because your life was sort of centered around the power the prestige mm-hmm. the wealth um i mean was that hard to let go of or do you just look at all of that very differently today
1: <coughs> it was hard to let go of i mean mm-hmm. listen you know i had a jet plane a helicopter at uh, all the money i ever needed and uh, you know it's its fame and fortune not so much fame i mean i guess <laughs> You know I wasn't a celebrity in that regard, but people look up to you,
0: you within the circle you inhabited you yeah. you had a great deal of respect yeah. yeah yeah,
1: and you know being able to do whatever you want whenever you want uh there's power in that um do I miss that you know i, I can't really say I do because my life has been so fulfilled with what I have now, mm. you know between my family, my ministry, the people I associate with um you know I, I do the most attractive part of that life mm. for me was the camaraderie with the guys. Yeah. I mean, I really, really got into that. But, you know, God is gracious. Today he's given me a fellowship with mm. a lot of Christian brothers, mm. and, and and so that replaces it in a way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are times when I think, if I only had this now, you know, <laughs> what I had back then, but, you know.
0: Yeah, well, an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Uh, If people want to find out more about you, is there a website they can visit?
1: MichaelFrancis.com. How do you spell Francis? F-R-A-N-Z-E-S-E. MichaelFrancis.com. And I'm on Twitter and and Facebook and all of those gadgets that we need to have.
0: Well, I I wish you the very best. uh, And my prayers go with you for the ministry you're undertaking here in the UK. you're, You're in the process of visiting a number of churches, speaking at some prisons and so on. Um, which is fantastic. And I know your ministry takes you all over the world, all kinds of situations. Uh, And all the very best for for the continuing ventures with the books, documentary, the film, and uh, indeed this this forthcoming stay show as well. Um,
1: Well, thank you. And I want to thank all the people here in the United Kingdom. They've been treating me so well, and I hope this is the first of many uh, mission trips that we have here over the years, and uh, hopefully it becomes like a second home.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, Michael Francis, thank you very much for being with me on the profile today. Again, Michaelfranzis.com if you want to find out more about Michael's extraordinary story. Uh, the book is Blood Covenant, and uh, the movie, if you want to check it out, is called God the Father. You can probably tell that's a pun on the, the well-known <laughs> film. Um, for the moment, thanks for being with me on the program today, Michael. And if you'd like to hear today's show again, you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, that's at premierchristianradio.com. Forward slash the profile. Uh, Why not check it out, send it on to a friend, bless them with Michael's story and uh, check out where he's going to be speaking as well in the future at his website. Uh, For now, I'm Justin Browley, the senior editor of Premier Christianity magazine. Again, if you want to get a hold of a free sample copy of the magazine that keeps you up to date with all aspects of Christian culture, news, church and real life Um, do go and check out the website, premierchristianity.com. We'll be back with another guest telling us about their life story at the same time next week. For the moment, time to hand over to Dave Rose with some of the best parts of the past week here on Premier Christian Radio.